I've been keen to quiz DPhil student Pedro Charlesworth on his cycling adventures since we first met through Wilson's Green Team sometime in 2022. If you've seen the pre-loved bike scheme Ox Bikes here at the college or elsewhere around Oxford, which aims to tackle the city's high demand and discard of bikes on a timely basis, then you'll be pleased to learn that Pedder is one of the brains behind the operation. Pedder, thank you so much for joining us on Pivot Points. So it's a really interesting moment to have you on the podcast because, as you know, we've worked together a lot with you on the Green Team. Um, we're really increasing our initiatives around sustainable transport. So you're, you're here for your research, obviously, but somehow alongside that, you found the time and the space to found your own pre-loved bike initiative. So let's start there. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's yeah, great to be here. Um, I, I really like the setup of this. So, yeah, I mean, I guess an introduction to me at, at Oxford and what I'm doing here is I am meant to be doing a, a PhD in material science <laughs> at some point. Uh, and I'm looking at the specific materials like ceramic materials. So I tell people I'm kind of a glorified potter, but without anything pretty to show. Uh, and I look at these materials for like nuclear fusion applications. So the overall arching theme is kind of this brainchild of physics to produce clean energy and renewable clean energy. So that's kind of what I what I do to job as a job here, I guess. And that's my research and I'm my third of four years um, studying that now. But like Leah, like you said, I've kind of got involved with initially the Wolfson Green team um, and what they do here and helping with making some maps and just general providing my thoughts and ideas and trying to try to make Wolfson more of a community that's based on sort of these green principles of which it was founded as well. And and like you said, yes, uh, kind of what spun out from that and, and from just being in the ecosystem at Oxford is found someone that had just started up a very small bike company, which is selling secondhand bikes. Uh, and essentially got in right at the beginning with that and it's expanded over the sort of year and a half that it's been going from from now having its own website where you can essentially rent bicycles in Oxford. It's the largest bike rental company in Oxford in terms of numbers of bikes and, and mm. traffic through there. Uh, and the idea is that, yeah, it, it provides love for bikes that sort of get thrown away and in Oxford as you, you know everyone travels by bicycle and there is this sort of asymmetry in when people want to buy and when they want to sell them and you have this like constant throughput of students thousands of students that come each year often international that realize they want a bike and then buy it all in September or October and start Michaelmas and then they all just leave them in term June so and not often genuinely do leave them like I was at a, a party last week and someone described when they were at Oxford that when they finished their masters what they did is rode their bike to the rad cam and just let it free and just left it there <laughs> just knowing that someone was going to take, take it and yeah. it's very much this ethos of like you know students do really care about their pennies but also when it's done a lot of people just leave and, and, and I, I don't and don't know what they want to do with their bicycle and don't really have time to think about it mm. so there was this sort of asymmetry that we saw and then you have this idea of like where do you get a bicycle from it's quite a personal thing or everyone's trying to buy at the same time so you often buy them from sources but you often maybe feel a little bit pressured to buy a bicycle when some older person has come in from Whitney and driven for 20 minutes or something and you're just stood there in the centre of Oxford not knowing anything about a bicycle going, yeah, I think it's okay, I'll take it. And, mm. and and we heard a lot of this. So it's kind of come from this ethos of originally it was just you buy bikes from the website and it's just a list of bikes and it, you, don't bid, you don't bid for them and there's no messaging, it's just, okay, you pay for that. And it's now evolved into having this rental system and we've now got it so the website is completely automated in that sense. But to, to add to that, we're now looking at 
helping the colleges cull their bikes mm. and how we can do that in a sustainable way that we could reuse some of them and pay them uh, so that students can get hold of them again and kind of complete this bike cycle basically mm-hmm. uh, and yeah it's been it's been a bit of a fun journey I'd say it takes up quite a bit of time but so far it has been really rewarding and it's nice to see when you do get lots of people happy with how they're how they're doing and how they're finding their bikes so yeah it's been a little bit of a journey but hopefully there's a long way to go yeah I can imagine and I think that leads us quite nicely into all three of your pivot points really which center around bikes <laughs> so I'm curious as to basically where where did that love of bikes begin honestly it's something that's only happened in the latter part of my life mm. I, I grew up not that far away sort of between Reading and, and London I was just played football like everyone at my school did and then I ditched the football to go skateboarding and did that intensely till I was about 18 and it's mm-hmm. all I cared about uh, I then went to university where I kind of just was a jack of all trades and tried everything I was mm-hmm. in did a bit of the cricket and I did a tiny bit of cycling and you're at Bristol for your undergrad yeah, yeah. studying chemistry mm-hmm. and but was mostly into electronic music and really enjoyed DJing in Bristol so that didn't really bode well with trying to be in a cycling team because I'd often mm-hmm. be out playing on a Friday mm-hmm. and then come Saturday morning I was just hanging on the back of the bunch so what I would say is like the the love of bikes came later like it was I, I bought my first bike secondhand actually um, from eBay when I had a job videoing um, conferences in London and this is just going before I went to Bristol uh, and I would the only way I could get to London quick enough was I had to I took the bike because I could beat the train there because it took so long on my little line <laughs> I had to get to another station and then I could get into London on time to be able to film these conferences. Mm. So that's why I bought my first road bike and then I would just use it to explore the Chilterns and things like that. But like, honestly, my biggest ever ride was like 30 miles or something mm-hmm. like that. It didn't really come about easily. I did one session with the cycling team my first year and then started doing a few in my final year. But what really sparked the interest was between those two points, Um, in my first year I was on a bus in Bristol and I overheard some people talking behind me and they were both students and they didn't really they knew of each other but they didn't know each other well but it was kind of the conversation where it went hey John like what did you do I heard you did something really cool last summer you're in Norway (laughs) and he was like yeah yeah I I rode a bike for 10 days in Norway and it's great because the roads are awesome the people speak better English than I do and you can camp anywhere because there's a law in Scandinavia generally generally that you can just camp anywhere it's not private property And that sparked something for me. And I thought, wow, this is this is cool. I like this idea of something adventurous. I like that. But I thought, okay, if Norway sounds very hilly, I'm, I'm not a keen cyclist necessarily. I'm going to go to Sweden. <laughs> so I booked a ticket to Gothenburg with me and my little rally bike that I used to ride to these conferences mm. and had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I turned up. I, I, firstly, I wrapped my bike in bubble wrap which is not what you're is meant to do. Apparently thing? not, no. So I thought, you know, they can see it's a bike, they'll look after it. So I get to Gothenburg and the airport's not actually in the city, it's in the, in the forest. Mm. And I found that the, my bike was broken and I couldn't change gear. And I didn't really know how to fix it or anything. I genuinely turned up with a, a paper map and stuff. I was 18. And I got the bike to the hostel and then found a bicycle shop to get it fixed. Mm. And whilst I was in that hostel... I was speaking to some of the other people there, just you know, what they're doing in Gothenburg and whatnot. And one guy told me, oh, there's another group of cyclists here. So I said, please, can you take me to their room? Because I was so terrified about what I was going to embark on that I wanted some just knowledge of whatever. So yeah. I went to their room, literally knocked on it and just said, hey, guys, you know, what are you doing? And said, oh, we're cycling from Stockholm to Paris. There were four American students that had just finished their master's degrees and were all going off to jobs. And this mm. is kind of a last hurrah. 
So I asked if I could cycle with them from Gothenburg to where my paper map actually started because, believe it or not, Gothenburg wasn't actually on the map. So they said, okay, can I come with you then? They said, no worries. So what was meant to be three days became three and a half weeks. And then we became really good friends and they taught me how to, how to camp in like places, how to couch surf and took me to all these different parties of friends that they knew in the cities. Mm. So we saw Germany win the World Cup in Hamburg and things like that. They just stayed with me ever since and couch surfing experiences from them really enlightened something in me hmm. so the next year I did the same again I worked in a pub for the rest of the summer and then flew to Helsinki and cycled from Helsinki to Berlin and that was probably one of the loneliest weeks of my life hmm. down the down the east coast of Sweden is just pine forests and it just wasn't really much there I didn't have this experience of meeting lots of people in that area naturally yeah. and just found that quite hard but I got to Berlin and had a lovely time in, in again another hostel there and managed to couch surf with some people on the area coming in and some of those people are now still some of my best friends. And Fabi, one of the girls, is coming to visit from Switzerland next oh, week. Amazing. Um, so that, that's really cool. And that yeah. just sort of ignited this idea of cycling and, and why it was interesting. It was more of a vector to travel and to meet people. Mm. And what happened on that trip is I read this book, which is one of the points I talked to you about, which mm-hmm. is The Mood of Future Joys by Alistair Humphreys. And whilst I was doing that trip, obviously, this is just a, it was just a three week cycle. So there's nothing big compared to what other people have done and and this this guy Alistair from Yorkshire writes a book about how he cycled around the world for four and a half years and he never takes a plane he always sails across and goes through some crazy situations like Siberia in the winter Mm. and all sorts of things like that and that kind of ignited this idea of maybe there was you could people were doing bigger things and there was a community out there and these three-week trips that kind of just nudged me in that direction sort of started the snowball going that when it came time to finish university I didn't know whether or not I wanted to do a PhD and hadn't found anything that I was incredibly passionate about in chemistry at that time and felt that maybe I'd just be walking into a PhD without mm. sort of thoughts or direction. And the direction just seemed naturally to be pulling me to go and try explore. So I'd spent the third year of my degree working um, and doing lectures in the mornings and evenings, which is part of this like special course that I was on. And that meant I left university with enough money to potentially go traveling for a little while. I wanted to do it with friends, but didn't have anyone that really wanted to ride a bicycle indefinitely for a period of time, (laughs) which is fair enough. (laughs) Uh, And then, and then, yeah, so that's kind of where it, where it, where it ended in terms of like, you know, that's how the bicycle sort of came into my life really. And then I decided in like, it was literally five years ago, a few, like a few days ago. Yeah. On the 18th of January, 2018 is when I decided I was going to try and ride a bicycle originally to India and then Sydney and then it kind of I don't know went a little bit crazy I guess (laughs) (laughs) and I think Covid got in the way of that trip as well right it did but I count myself incredibly fortunate Mm. because my idea was to try to ride a bike from from London to Sydney and do that in 12 months Mm. and I I was very much locked in that okay I was working in 12 month periods because my my thing was that I'd done one year working and I'd done a, got a, a four-year degree, essentially, uh, with one year's working in that time. So if mm. I took a year off, I would be at the same place, I guess, mm. as everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which looking back at it now, kind of maybe just sort of epitomizes how my thought process was, that everything mm. was kind of blocked and planned out. And poten- basically when I got about six months into that trip and I was cycling along what, what is the ancient Silk Road, I guess, mm. through, through the stands in Central Asia... Just a few things happened there that really sort of changed my mindset to why I was doing this, what was important, and then why did I have to come home at this time and, mm. and, and why had I planned everything out to such an extent, I mm. guess. I know people that were involved in that that really sort of helped shape, I guess, 
what I wanted to do mm. beyond just cycling. Yeah. Yeah. And it also really strikes me as you talk through that journey, how kind of how how much of a student experience some of those moments are, because especially as an undergrad, you have long periods of holiday and the workload is a lot less intense than it is as a postgraduate. So I'm curious about how cycling shaped your experience then compared to how it shapes or how, how it's involved in your student and academic experience now as your lifestyle changes. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an interesting question. For, for me, undergrad was so packed full of things, I mm. would say, that cycling was just kind of a quick release. and mm. But it was something that really gave me headspace, and it always has given me headspace. When I used to play music and, and do my undergraduate, the Sunday morning going out with the club, even though I was not in anywhere near the team or even desiring <laughs> to be, <laughs> I was just hanging at the back. I was having a great time because I just, I just cleared myself out of the city. Yeah. And I do love... I love being in cities, but I do need to have my headspace at some mm. point. So it was always been kind of this release for me in, 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 in every sense. So from from then and then taking it through the trip, it then honestly became this this sort of promise that I gave myself was when I came back after it was ended up being over two years um, that I wanted to keep cycling ingrained in my life in some in some way, shape or form. And I was passionate about potentially energy. And the two things sort of fused together in some of the interests I have now. But I would say there was no real direction involved in premeditating, mm. definitely the ox bikes thing. But I decided I'd join the cycling team here at Oxford because I knew that having cycled every, almost every day for two years, those were the happiest two years of my life. And mm. I, I genuinely felt that being outside helped that. Mm. And I think it's important to sort of paint a picture of w- what it looks like maybe cycling around the world in that there are these incredible times that you never forget for the rest of your life and Mm. the people and the landscapes that just genuinely take your breath away and sort of inspire you but there's also a lot of industrial estates and Mm. there are lots of camping next to border towns and truckers and Mm. you know I have great times at truckers but you know being woken up by some stinky camas truck (laughs) when you're going across Uzbek is not the most fun place to be and you do see the warts and all of everywhere Mm. which I think gives you a really good and fair representation of of what you're seeing. Mm. The, the bicycle is a really humble way to get around. People interact mm. with you differently because of it. And I just think that as a vector sort of shows you sort of what it is there. But I was still happy. There were lots of times that were tough, like don't get me wrong. And mm. and some lonely stretches, like you said. Hugely yeah. lonely stretches, especially. I, honestly, though, I never felt as lonely as that first trip, that second really? trip, yeah. But but there were points where Was that because was, it was new or...? I think so. Yeah. I think so. And also being in an environment where you're so overstimulated... To really strip that back to mm. to just a road and some some pine forests is yeah is quite difficult and I found mm. the same when crossing some of the deserts especially through through Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan you you just go for days without sort of sensory deprivation just not really seeing anything other than sand and, and camels mm. and 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 Australia and the outback was m- maybe less so like that but you know it was just you chuck a load of food on your bike and. 300 miles to the next petrol station kind of thing um but but what i wanted to say is that you know it, during all those times even when it was tough i still really was happy with where i was and what i was doing and just mm. felt like i was really doing whatever it was that i needed to be doing in my life right now and i think that it was just more the outlook of those places that you get from being on a bike and having given yourself this arbitrary goal of having to try ride a bike to sydney which actually doesn't matter at all right mm. but what, what matters is i feel like i'm 
engaged in what's going on and the bike gave me that so that even when you're days in industrial estates i still finished the day feeling happy and content and i yeah. I knew that if i had more of that in my life i would still be able to look at the gray january days hopefully with i don't know a little slice of sun mm. when i was doing something that was potentially less adventurous or adventurous in a different way which could be a job or, or now my phd yeah so that was really important for me to to bring the bike into my life and it has become in some ways slightly an identity i think mm -hmm. um i can see that <laughs> <laughs> but it but, but i think it's important to just sort of say that it was not something i grew up with mm. or i'm you know I, I ride for the team for oxford and i raced for them but i was not doing this when I was seven years old mm. or was incredibly good when I was 16 I was just wasn't doing it at all yeah um, and it's just something that's come about and your your mode of cycling is very much an endurance sport right it takes a lot of perseverance and kind of long distance thinking and that also really just reminds me of how people approach PhDs and academic research do you find anything useful in in that type of thinking that helps you push through in your academic work for example yeah, I think that I think that's a good point. Definitely. I think there's so many parallels. And in mm. many ways, I feel that I have subbed out one mode or, or, or project for another mm. one mm -hmm. in that this is just as an overarching thing. And and yeah, I think I think planning definitely mm. in, in, in what I was doing, especially at the beginning, trying to work out things like that. But it's more just kind of having a yardstick to compare other things to. Mm. And I think that's just so refreshing that, OK, things are going bad with my materials or I don't know what I'm doing with it, but just kind of having some sort of yardstick of one, a comparison to what people's lives are actually like, mm. you know, and understanding sort of how privileged I even am to mm. call Oxford my university and, and be here and kind of just see what other people have been going through, even just through a small sort of lens of cycling through and talking to people. I think that perspective is massive. Mm. Um, that's motivation for, for just trying to appreciate what's going on and take that nice little walk around Oxford and go, actually, life's pretty yeah, good. Life, but my materials okay. just aren't working. Yeah. But that's just that, right? Mm. It's not my, it's not everything for me. Yeah. I think that perspective is great. And then there are, I guess, sort of more personal qualities in, in terms of just trying to be a bit more patient with things. Mm. Um, my golden rule in the lab at the moment is that try not to break things <laughs> when, <laughs> when you write when you rush things you you can break things and that's a lot yeah. worse than taking your time over something yeah um so i guess there's a little bit of that in there as well yeah um i mean you can talk about mental toughness and all those kind of things but um i, th I think just the perspective on that yeah. this isn't everything in my life and that yeah. i'll be okay without it and mm. if it all goes horribly wrong you'll find me somewhere in the andes with a tent <laughs> yeah. well speaking of remote places tell me about this moment where you found yourself in montana and you met some young kid who somehow had a very big impact on your life yeah so jake so jake was from montana and it was all part of that silk road experience so i was actually in kyrgyzstan uh no in tajikistan and it was england were playing in the world cup mm. and this kid from montana jake came around um, and what's really interesting is that Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor did this motorbike series where they motorbiked across the world to Mongolia and it inspired generations of overlanders, they call themselves, people that drive cars, motorbike, cycle to some extent, and they all do this trip. And it's kind of, for a lot of people, and understandably so, it's this once-in-a-lifetime thing. They save up loads of money for, for often, you know, decades, mm. and then decide to do this trip, and they spend ages choosing their right bike and go off with partner or a couple friends. And they, they ride these roads. And if you go 
into Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, it's extremely mountainous regions. It's something like 96% mountain in Tajikistan, so they really struggle to grow like agricultural crops. But the mountains are incredible, and you've got these plateaus at 4,000 meters. You can sort of look down to the south across the Panj River and see the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the Karakoram Mountains in Pakistan. Uh, and there's a really, some really crazy regions around there. Um, but they all sort of revolve around this route called the Pamir Highway. And the Pamir is the name they give to the mountains, the Pamir Mountains. And it's part of this journey that people do to Mongolia on the, on the motorbikes. So they come in, you know, if we're going to stereotype, having done all of this research and have just got everything mapped out to, mm. to the nth degree. And even though I talked about planning there, I very much kind of just drew three roads that I wanted to ride. The Pamir Highway was one of them. The one is the Karakoram Highway through Pakistan. And then there's Manali Leh Highway in India and the Himalayas. And I said, I just want to ride these three roads. And then whatever else will just make sense from that and what, what seems interesting. Mm. But these people come along with all this equipment and have, have really planned this out properly. Like they really know what they're doing. Uh, and I met this kid, Jake, in a hostel who had been motorbiking around this area for about six weeks. When you say kid, how old is he? He was 17. Okay. And he had... And he was there on his own. On his own. Wow. And he had flown from Montana, having worked on his parents' farm, to Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan. He'd gone into a market and bought a motorbike for a thousand US off a Scottish guy. <laughs> and had said he'd only ridden a motorbike three times and had ridden some of the gnarliest roads around. Wow. And not only that, he'd gone back and forth through these remote valleys. So often people just ride one of them because it doesn't make sense to zigzag, but hmm. he just decided to ride all of them. And uh, it just it just really took a step back for me because he he didn't know how to fix a motorbike at all. Hmm. And, and, you know, I said, well, what happens? Yeah. If something goes wrong. Exactly. And he, he had one spanner with him. And he showed me the spanner. <laughs> it wasn't even adjustable. Did he like, have a bag? Or is he he had a rucksack. Like a little rucksack. Oh, okay, a little fine. rucksack. Oh, not a leather jacket. He was not a biker <laughs> at all. He was just this kid. And he had this motorbike he bought for a thousand US and a spanner. And that was it. And he'd mm. done all of the most remote valleys in the Pamir Highway, basically, that all these people were talking about and, you know, saying in hushed tones about how scary and nervous they were with their crazy nice bikes and, and whatever. And I just loved that mentality of he was just saying, well, I'm going to work it out. If it goes wrong, I'll just wait until someone eventually comes. And mm. I'm sure I would just, I'll just survive. I think he had a tent, but okay. he was he was mainly just trying to go to hostels. But, right. but I just loved that, that he was just mm. saying, no, no, I'm just going to put myself there yeah. and I'm going to work it out. And mm -hmm. had done some of the craziest trips out of anyone I'd heard or talked to in this valley. And he was 17. And it was just such a mentality that he had that revitalized my sort of, revitalized me to try and not plan as much. Mm. And just, okay, I don't need to be here, there and everywhere. And it was a combination of meeting him. There was two other things that happened there, actually. One was actually quite tragic. But the other was, these. I met these Swiss bankers in, again, a hostel just on from the one I made Jack. And... They were just saying, well, what, you know, what are you doing? And I explained my trip and, you know, that I was going to go home and, and study this grad scheme potentially. And they just asked me why. Like, why did I want to do that? And mm. they said, look, I'm with, we're, well, they were probably like 40, 30 years older than me at the time. And they said, you know, we've worked all our lives to be able to afford to do this and take this time off work. If I was you, I would just keep going until you can't beg, borrow or steal any more money to keep to keep doing this. Mm. And those two things really changed things for me. I ended up not taking the route I pre-planned and ended up just doing a massive loop around Southeast Asia. When I got to Sydney, I decided I didn't want to end the trip there and just carried on and ended up cycling through New Zealand and South America, which is where I had some of the, the most enjoyable parts gen genuinely of my life. Mm. And I just think that sort of idea that you'll work it out 
it's really important. But if you don't put your name in the ring or put mm. your name in the hat to go in the ring, then you, you'll, you'll never be there, right? Yeah. And I just love that, that he was he was doing that. And it's set amongst this backdrop of what was quite a, a crazy emotional time because riding the Silk Road, there was a lot of sort of desert regions. There's a lot of really incredibly friendly people. Mm. And I would say to anyone that's traveling in sort of Muslim countries that just the, the door is always open to them because it's just so so friendly and welcoming mm. um but but the, the the sad thing that happened that kind of framed this and just in a more poignant way was this road the Pamir highway um it borders afghanistan so we generally would cycle along the road 10 meters away from afghanistan across the Panj river and you could talk to the people there not that i could really say very much but it was just this great connection um but unfortunately in previous years it had been a prime opium smuggling route for the taliban and people had bit, had warning shots fired at them and those types of things in years gone by. But there had never been any trouble because generally the Tajik people are very nice and there's been a huge crackdown um, from the Tajik army on the border. But also uh, this was a time where the UK, the States and other countries were present in Afghanistan. But there was the rise of ISIS and there were some radicalizations that went on. Uh, and, unf and unfortunately, um, there is, well, fortunately, there's a strong cycling community, but there was a couple called Lauren and Jay who I got to know through Instagram who were cycling in Africa when I was doing my trip. Mm. And we became just sort of friends through that and would write to each other. And then I found out when I was cycling along the road that whilst I was there and didn't have any internet connection, they had flown to Kyrgyzstan and started cycling on the road back. And mm. we met in this valley on a plateau having had no idea each other were there and oh. it was a very like amazing experience to just finally meet them and then we kept messaging because I'd ridden a road that they were riding and likewise they'd done the same mm. but unfortunately I stopped getting messages from them uh, about a week or two after this and what happened was a, a tragic event where some young teenagers have been radicalized by ISIS um, across from in Af Afghanistan one assumes and had come and run them all down including another couple and uh another guy behind them and had and had come out with knives and, and killed them and it became this huge story in Tajikistan uh, and something that really rocked the cycling community mm. and I had quite a lot of journalists asking me for, for more details that I didn't I didn't have but I ended up reading a lot of just things that Lauren and Jay had, had spoken about and written on their blog um, and just sort of really sort of give this sort of zest for life that you know not that I was morbidly thinking if I'm gonna go next but but more just like you know, right here, right now, I'm, I really feel like I'm doing something that for me is makes me really happy and is really important. And mm. that they probably, if there's any way to go, it's doing something like that for mm. them. And I think that can combine with this enthusiasm from Jake, who was just with his spanner going off and riding over. And the last day I ever saw Jake was him going into Afghanistan on his bike wow. to ride up to some lake. You know, it yeah. was just incredible. And then and then these bankers that kind of gave that sort of elderly perspective on everything. And mm. that combination of the Silk Road genuinely did change, I think, me and my perspective mm, on, on what I wanted to do and, and to try and just, just live a little bit more. Yeah. And, you know, you come back to the UK and you appreciate so many things. But you also have perspective on maybe sort of social structures that are in place mm. and where they often push you to do things in this mm. block year grad scheme kind of thinking. Mm. Um, I'm not saying I've broken the mold. I, I definitely fall straight back into it when I'm here, but mm. hopefully have some perspective. And those three events in that place combined with just the incredible friendliness from people 
Mm. where you know for instance i was sick and stayed in someone's garden for three days you know like <laughs> can you imagine someone doing that here and no, knocking exactly. on your door in in southern oxford or where yeah. i am anyway and just yeah. saying hey is it right if i camp in your garden yeah. and, and 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 just like that is incredible and that genuinely happened many times yeah and i think that whole sort of melting pot of, of riding the silk road was just this incredible point of perspective for me that yeah can hopefully i can draw on hopefully in the future yeah i find it so interesting that we do live in such a a well-structured and comparatively safe community but the amount of fear that we have between strangers is like incomparable and then if you think of an experience like that the fact that you can come away with it and you don't feel deterred from having these kind of out of the box experiences is great yeah i i i I totally agree I, i think what we do really well is we adjust to our surroundings Mm. and I think there is a sort of level of background fear that people have uh, and it will just be applied to something else and we have this 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 thing of you know what is suffering is the wrong word necessarily but I I think maybe for lack of a better one it kind of fits in there too Um, but but in terms of fear I think we'll always fear things Mm. but the repercussions of which could be vastly different depending on where you grow up mm. and but the thing is you will adjust to that so that if you were going somewhere probably now mm. in Tajikistan that area probably is going to be a prime opium smuggling route and it probably will be a lot more dangerous for those people that live there mm. they may now fear genuine not being able to afford anything for their children and the welfare of their kids and that fear will take off a, a huge amount of, of probably you know, their time yeah. um, and that's you know a fear with a repercussion that's really high mm. and then we or you know there are people, people here that fear other things maybe not to that degree but to a disproportionately high amount mm. which may be looking silly in front of a class or yeah. you know and, and, and it's, you know you can't illegitimize them they are if you feel like that you feel like that but yeah, I think the, we the, just the appropriate real, it's disproportionate yes. to what the repercussions are yeah. right in our in our social structure yeah. I think that's really interesting to see mm. and and the same with sort of putting yourself through some sort of hardship mm. and maybe hardship's a better way you know and 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 for me one of the reasons that I really liked cycling was that you could go out for even here in the winter for two or three hours and feel like <laughs> you're on death's door you know because you're so cold and mm. genuinely disgruntled that when you come back just a bit of warmth and a cup of tea makes you feel amazing yeah and i think that is a healthy reset to what is living in the most incredibly privileged place and studying amongst amazing people and just being safe day to day yeah to some extent can help yeah understand that and just bringing things kind of close to home again i can imagine that that um that sort of attitude towards risk and safety also plays into how you might approach your own you know your own company your own initiative like ox bikes because obviously there are you know there are risks and things involved in that and it's maybe disproportionate if you compare it to something else but it's still I can imagine at least that you still have the same attitude of like well if I don't try it then I'm never gonna know right 100% yeah and And it's now become hugely successful for you guys Hopefully, it's 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 go it's going in the right direction, but but for sure, and and it's putting yourself out there in a different way. Mm. You know, there there's generally a fear of it failing, or yeah. and 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 also just a fear of offering something that's bad. And mm. and every time there is an issue with a bicycle, it is something that you know genuinely makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and 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 I want to try and and help and fix that, and yeah. we're trying to make better systems for it. Mm. But for sure, there's there's definitely this element of of trying and failing or, or the fail, like fear of failure, but mm. it's almost putting yourself in, well, kind of why not 
it's, yeah, it's Jake exactly. in his little spanner like why not like exactly. just see what why not happens. just put yourself in that situation yeah so um, then talk me through your third and final pivot point of being in London and, and you had this moment where all of these messages just started coming into you and that's when you knew that Oxbikes was really onto something yeah it, it it's maybe not as exotic as the other two points yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no crazy story behind it but but essentially yeah to, to put it in context got I got involved in Oxbikes back in my second year uh, in Mirkumis then and it was just you know we literally had got some bikes from Trinity College and were kind of just checking them over and then selling them and then in June we started to have this website but it still didn't have any proper code behind it and I just scrambled together a piece of code that stopped us selling duplicate bikes because that's a <laughs> real pain when you sell the same bike five times and it's always one bike that's yeah. better than the others so you know that's kind of the level we started at was really really basic mm. with just this idea um and then and then yeah we went on to to having to having you know Hungarian families coming and and, and renting out all these bikes and mm. this fear of like it being it being a bad product I guess but um, in the the last few months I, I went and did a, a collaboration project up in Lancaster and at that time it was a crazy period the Queen died and then we got a call from someone saying hey I've seen an advert on Facebook I'd like to invest in ox bikes. And we, had, we were just, oh my goodness, really? Like someone wants to invest? And we had a few calls and he gave us some money for it. Um, and at that point, you know, the goal was to try buy a hundred more bicycles, do them, make sure they're in good functioning order, and then start to sell them and rent them basically. Mm. And this is, you know, tripling our fleet at the time and, and really going somewhere more professional than we'd ever been before. And we've managed to get someone from Imperial to help program stuff. But what happened on the day of the marathon was I was on the bus and I get notifications whenever someone makes it, we make a rental or sale. And I was only a 10 minute bus journey. And I think all of the people seemed to culminate in one bus journey. And my <laughs> phone was just buzzing the whole time. I, I just couldn't believe what had happened that this many people were actually interested in this funky little website that we'd made <laughs> that, that they wanted to sell from us. And then at that point it was evident that, okay, we didn't have a good website mm. and you know, we really weren't advertising it anyway. Marketing was nil. We just had this little website called Oxbikes. Mm. It's called Oxbikes because someone took Oxbike. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> and it, it really was like like that. It was just kind of us pulling things together. And mm. by the end of that journey, it was we all sort of sat down and were like, oh my goodness, well, this is now something, you know? Yeah. Because before that point, talk about taking the risk is, I was worried that this, you know, initially that this investor was maybe wasting their money in some senses you know mm. why were they coming in and doing this and i think completely vindicated in that point that if we could just hold things together and make it work like mm. we would be able to get somewhere with it yeah and and hopefully it does help students and and generally helps bike wastage in oxford so mm. keep fingers crossed. i think it does so what's next for ox bikes what's next for ox bikes yeah that's a great question <laughs> <laughs> well actually when we were initially doing this podcast i was pitching um at the Said business school here at oxford for for some more funding and, and and there's a few ways we want to go with that um we're trying to get into more colleges so at mm -hmm. the moment we've we've got quite a few more depots coming mm -hmm. which is great and the idea is to go to cambridge mm -hmm. by the by the end of this academic year is mm -hmm. we are setting up at the moment in cambridge to go just You're a couple colleges the there. Name. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the actual overall company now is called bike b-y-k-e Nice. And that's gonna so yeah we we're on bike and then mm -hmm. ox bikes is gonna be part of that yeah and then we're going to have uh, equivalent Cambridge bikes Cam bikes yeah exactly right <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah that's kind of the idea is to do those things but but you know if I was to think and, and wish in the future is like I love this idea of 
nailing down Oxford and Cambridge and really supplying what is a good service for students, but kind of by students. Mm. And having it be this ecosystem where people can learn about how to be part of a company mm. and how these small small enterprises work and get skills that are not available mm. academically, but also yeah, can earn some great. money. Mm-hmm. But That's so useful because I feel like mm. that's the kind of thing that you just don't learn in an academic setting and there's no way to learn it. Exactly, exactly. Other and than just doing it. It's really nice. You know, I've just come from the Wolfson workshop at the moment mm. where I've got really good friend and, and work colleague Tom mm. um, and another person who's just started Tillman and mm-hmm. you know we're just talking through these things and they're really excited in the moment helping us check bikes and we're going to hopefully get them doing a bunch of meetings and setting up things like mm. it's is exciting yeah and that's hopefully going to be this sort of node but if I was to to wish for what it could be in the future it would be sort of like a an Airbnb of bicycles where mm. you're going to a different city and you know the classic ones are Amsterdam, or Copenhagen, or maybe even Barcelona. And you're going there, and you want to rent a bike, not just for an hour or two. You want to rent it for a day or a week or something like that. And anyone who lives in that city can post their spare bikes on this app in mm. a very much same way as Airbnb. The good people get rewarded with good reviews, kind of thing. Mm. And you can go there and say, okay, and they just drop their bike off at a rack with a good lock on it a couple hours before, and you go and pick it up and then bring it back, mm. and then kind of have this exchange of That's having ideal. people travel by bicycle yeah. in different cities, and not just a city bike where you have to drop it off at the depot. Mm. Or you could have your bike touring company, your, your bike um, shop that has rental bikes already but how are you meant to find them often mm. the websites are clunky and mm-hmm. you know it'd be great to connect those people up in that sort of way so that's kind of maybe an overall arching sort of dream of what it could be yeah uh, but at the moment we're just trying to provide a good service for students no I, I think that's such a great idea and it's it's almost one of the one of those ideas that's so great and so good that it's like how has nobody done that yet yeah you know and I, mean? I think the the main thing is people focus on short-term transport yeah true and like the ubers and the boys and stuff mm. and that's that's how they generally will be yeah so yeah we will see but at the moment it's just trying to it's trying to somehow get a phd um yes. keep keep cycling mm-hmm. and yeah make sure spikes does and good. how much longer do we have you here at awesome for so i'm i will have to finish my write-up in october 24 so okay. still got quite so a bit of time. time yeah yeah so if you're need, needing a bike femca we can we can help you out perfect <laughs> sounds good thank you very much better thank you very much for having me